and I, my Uncle Marty is four years older than I am. We were playing in the backyard of our house on Ward Road in Columbus. There was an apple tree um, that grew right beside our house, and most of the apples fell to the ground, and they were rotten. And there was also a bee's nest just under the window of my parents' bedroom that faced the backyard, and there, you know, one day they were buzzing and flying all around it, and we thought that was great. And so Marty and I decided the best thing we could do to not get stung was to pick up as many of those apples as we could and chuck them at the bee's nest. And so it's, it's fine. We did it from the alley, like back, so there's no way they could find out where the apples were coming from. So we we pelted the the, the nest, and I, I don't need to tell you what happens next. It did. And uh, it was so bad. My mom, when she tells the story, she loves the story. She likes to tell people how she had to use a comb to brush the bees out of my hair. I got stung so many times. My uncle got stung so many times. We could title that story, A Lack of Wisdom. Right? That would be a great thing to title it. And I imagine we all have a similar story or stories where we acted without wisdom and we paid the price for it, maybe even horribly. But in Ecclesiastes 8, Solomon turns to wisdom specifically and he makes two main points about it. Now, the first is that wisdom is necessary to survive in a fallen and dangerous world here under the sun. So he starts off by praising wisdom. As we will see in the passage, he asks, who is like the wise? And the obvious answer is, at least in this context, is, well, no one. No one is like the wise, as exalted as the wise is. The second point he makes is that wisdom gives us insight that others lack. That's why he asks, who knows the interpretation of a thing. Solomon might have been thinking about wise men in a royal court like his own uh, who were charged with interpreting signs or dreams for their king. Think in the Bible of characters like Joseph uh, before Pharaoh in Egypt and over against all his wise men. Think about Daniel before Nebuchadnezzar and his wise men. Joseph and Daniel were the epitome of what Solomon is talking about. Truly wise. No one actually knows the interpretation of such things as would go on in the king's court, except the wise is the point he's making. So there are people who fail to gain or use wisdom as a means of getting by under the sun. But on the other hand, as Solomon will explore, there are those who can't live with any mystery whatsoever, can't leave anything left unknown. They think they should be able to find answers to all of their questions. Everything should be answered. So the text identifies a dual need for those who live by faith in this world tonight. We should use wisdom to navigate this fallen world, but must also realize that wisdom is limited in its ability to find out all there is to know about the world or about its creator. We must rest in the wisdom of God personified in His Son, Jesus Christ, and what He has chosen to make known to us through Him as we live under the sun. So let me pray one more time. Our Father, be with us tonight. Be with me as I speak. Lord, keep my mind focused on You. Help me not go beyond the text. Help me make sense of this and be clear. May Christ be exalted. May His truth be revealed to us. And so, Lord, I ask also for everyone that will hear that You would enable us to do so, Father. And I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In verse 1, Solomon writes, Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? 
A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. So Solomon starts with a proverb and a hopeful one at that. Wisdom changes a person. Wisdom is so valuable and powerful that it makes a man's face shine. It softens the hardness that you develop under the sun of a person's face. Wisdom makes the world easier to navigate. It gives in some sense or some sense of relief in the understanding it provides. The countenance of the face reveals the feelings of the heart. So wisdom, when a person has wisdom, it's reflected even in their countenance, even in their face. So right out of the gate, Solomon isn't going to demean wisdom. It is valuable. Listen to how he instructs us to use it now in this world, particularly for those who live under the authority of a king. So in verse 2, he writes, I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? So the first practical advice Solomon gives in chapter 8 is how wisdom should inform us as we deal with those who have power over us. The authority of kings comes from God. God has in that sense made an oath. God has granted power to kings, and therefore wisdom would be to respect that authority, that power. If not for the king's sake, then for God's sake. God is the one that we serve. This truth is carried on through all of Scripture, through the New Testament. In Romans 13, Paul commands us to be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. In 1 Peter 2.13, he commands us to be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So wisdom would mean acting in such a way before a king, before authority, as to not incur their wrath so that their authority could, their God-given authority could be used to hurt us or to make our lives difficult. What would be wise, as we ponder that, what would be wise for God's people in America right now under the president we have, in the current political and social climate in which we live. Wisdom, again, would have us stay off the radar, unless and until we're forced to disobey men in order to obey God, so that we don't cross ways. If if we step outside of that, we will cross ways with God's heart and God's purpose that have been revealed to us in 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 4. Wisdom is to submit yourself to God, which is why it's wise to submit to earthly authorities until we literally can't. Until we literally can't. The gospel trumps everything, even my personal rights, even my feelings. So when Jesus commands us to be wise as serpents and innocent as doves, there's a reason he's commanding us that and not to be as loud as hyenas and active as rabbits. Those are two very different things. Look at verses 3 and 4 again. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. I wonder how many people know that verse is in the Bible. right? Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. What good would it do to take a stand for something 
against the king? What a powerful question, beloved. And we could say, well, Tony, that's just the thing. We live in a constitutional republic. We're not under a king. So we can vote. We can change things. We have a voice and we can take stands. Fair enough. Fair enough. Right? But I would say that the lessening of the authority's power over us doesn't equal using it to our advantage, but for even greater submission, biblically speaking. If submission is easier, then do more of it, right? Not less of it. Why? Well, Jesus triumphed by suffering. And we are not above our master, regardless of our earthly citizenship. We've been trained to think like Americans. We need to think like Christians. When Paul writes to the Philippian Christians in Philippians 1, 27 to 30, he tells them they must be standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, not for every good cause under the sun, not for every worthwhile cause under the sun, but for the faith of the gospel. That's it. For it has been granted to us to suffer for the sake of Christ, That's what being single-minded about the gospel will cause. Because we are engaged in the same conflict Paul was engaged in, or we should be. Notice that conflict, not conflicts. One conflict. Other conflicts compromise the conflict. We are called by God to be involved in. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.4 that no soldier of Christ gets entangled in civilian affairs since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. So, beloved, if the fear of the Lord, right, the reverence to obey his word is the beginning of wisdom, what is wise for the American Christian now in this climate? To respect and submit to the authority God has given our leaders unless they command us personally to disobey Christ. It is not to take our stand and die on the hills of so many different causes that are tangents of the gospel at best but to go to Him for grace, to make all our striving for the faith of the gospel. In other words, to expend all the energy and ability to speak up that we do have, not to protect our American citizenship, but to proclaim our heavenly one. To be engaged in one conflict, which was the conflict of Paul, for the sake of the gospel. Listen, who gave Joe Biden his authority? Who gave Justin Trudeau his authority? Who gave Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron and Kim Jong-un and Xi Jinping, who gave all these men their authority? Beloved, our God did. So don't panic. Stay the course. Be faithful. Keep watch. Proclaim Christ, for the night will soon pass and he will reign forever and ever. All this is the truth of Jesus Christ that he's revealed to his people. What has he done? In his word, he's revealed to us the true state of things, how things really are despite how things look, so that we can live like he's calling us to live, so that we would not get distracted by other causes and take stands on hills that God is going to burn up one day anyway. Beloved, look to Christ. The day we live in, with the opportunities that we still currently have, call for wisdom. Godly wisdom. We are children of the light. I hate my own sin. I hate my own divided heart when it comes to these things. When the way of wisdom is so gracious and so clear, 
a single-mindedness Jesus calls us to that forgoes every other cause, even the good ones. The gospel gets watered down when you make it, when you attach other things to it. Verse 5. Whoever keeps the command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? He's recalling, he's drawing on the same truth from chapter 3, isn't he? And the future and the appointed time of everything under the sun. And this is the difficulty we have in the midst of our struggles We don't know what the future holds. We don't know. That's really the source, isn't it, of all our anxiety, our worry, our fretting. We don't know. And Solomon calls this the trouble that lies heavily on us. So our wisdom, even if we have it, is limited. We we know that Jesus will return. We don't know when Jesus will return. And biblical prophecy doesn't exist as the way to reveal that. As though that's the point of giving it to you so that you could figure out the day and the time. Beloved, that's not why God has given us prophecy. He's very, Jesus is very clear in Acts that it's not for us to know the times and seasons that the Father has placed in His own authority. That's not what we do. We don't try so hard to figure out what God has kept hidden. That's not what wisdom is for. God has given us prophecy to assure the church that the future we don't know is not just known, but has been ordained by our God and by our Father. So wisdom means living by faith. Look there at verse 5. Trust the Word of God. Keep the commands of the King. Again, as we learn in Acts, we must obey God rather than men. Absolutely. But as of right now, we aren't being forced by law to disobey Him. Wisdom then stays off the radar so that we can be committed to what God has given us to do. Don't give them other reasons to shut us up. Right? Just, if if you're free to speak, then speak the gospel. Don't ruin that by barking about other things. Just stay focused on the gospel. If God wanted to put an end to any of the evil going on in our country right now, He would do it. He has the power to do it. He could end abortion right now. He's not doing that. So we trust Him. We trust Him. Trust the Word of God. Keep the commands of the King. Stay off the radar. We don't know what God will reveal. We don't know what time it's going to be. We can't predict the seasons, but we do know that God holds all time in His hands and will reveal the time to us when we need to know it. We we want to know the future. We, We all do, but we're not meant to be omniscient, right? And apparently we were meant to repent for trying to be because it's foolishness that ignores God. Not even the wisest know the future perfectly. This belongs to God. That knowledge belongs to God. That wisdom is His and His alone. So as the old adage says, no matter what the future holds, we know who holds the future, right? It's a great saying. Look at how Solomon now digs into the deepest places in our hearts In this context, look at verse 8. He goes right where he's into what's driving his thoughts. He says in verse 8, No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. 
All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. So we're getting a little more clarity on just precisely what Solomon means by under the sun. For him, it's the realm in which man has power over man to his hurt. This is the realm in which people have power to hurt one another, and they do hurt one another. The same God who possesses ultimate sovereign authority over his created world has granted temporary, secondary authority to men, to people. This is part of his subjecting it to futility. This is a fruit of its fallenness by God's design so the people will grope for him for relief from the heat of the sun. This world is hard to live in for one reason in chapter 8, because people have power over us and people aren't very nice. Right? Power can and will be used to hurt people under it, to hurt us. And then we find out in the New Testament that it's God's will for us to suffer according to Paul. So we have promises, but we don't have exhausted knowledge of when they'll come true or even necessarily how they'll come true. We have no power over the day of our deaths, implying that there is a day of death. Right? Just ponder that for a minute. Let's say that it's as specific as God knowing the date, which of course he does, but let's say in a, it's, it's an appointed day or time. When's my day? When's my time? I think it's my time every time I get on a roller coaster with my kids. I'm sure it's the time. One time, it's a true story. I was at, uh, we were at Knott's Berry Farm in California, which is like a, like a poor man's Disney, living in Disney's shadow just up the freeway from it. And I got on a ride with my daughter late at night. We, we, it was my oldest daughter, Bella, and it was like a, like a school thing. And so the, the park wasn't very full. So you were just hopping on rides and I was much bigger then. I was about 35 pounds heavier than I stand before you tonight. And we get on this ride where the thing comes down and latches in between your legs, like, and you hold it like this, and your feet are dangling off of it, and it goes on this, you know, up, down hills, around, real high in the air. And uh, they put me in it, they buckle my daughter, and they go to buckle me, and it won't buckle. It won't go down far enough. And it starts moving, and I start to panic. And I'm looking at the kid who does not have the muscles to latch this thing. And he's looking at me like it's not going to latch. And I'm looking at him like I, it's not latching. Stop the ride. He keeps shoving. He calls another kid over. They shove it down and it locks. I don't feel like it's locked. And we're going on the ride. And for those two minutes, whatever it was, I'm telling you the honest truth. I have never been that scared in my entire life. I thought for sure at any moment. I was going to go flying off that thing. My poor daughter was going to watch me plummet to my death. And so I am terrified, terrified that I'm about to die, that I'm just, I'm going to die. My daughter's having the time of her life. I'm going to die. And the rides, we made it. I, I didn't die. Obviously, I'm here. But if, 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 you, if you can imagine there's an appointed day of death, an appointed time, who knows when it will be? Clearly it wasn't then. It felt like it was going to be then. It really did. I thought I was going to literally die, but it wasn't then. Faith would say, I didn't have to be afraid on that ride. If it's my time, it's my time. But faith is very hard to come by when it won't buckle, right? When the thing will not buckle. And so we're always in that place where we just, 
yes, God, I understand. I accept that there's an appointed day of my death and you hold my life in, in your hands. But beloved, in, in the moment when, when, when it's fear and terror, this is very hard. And, and Solomon is teaching us wisdom. Know this. Realize this. It will help you is what he's telling us. Even with great wisdom, we can't know everything. And I love the way that Solomon goes right from that into the fact that we don't know the day of our death. So you would think that with great wisdom, that's what you'd want to know the most. And Solomon says, even with it, you, you, you won't know that. We don't have power over the day of our deaths. We can't change it. We can't stop it. Even with great wisdom, we can't know everything. So, beloved, our relief, our peace and contentment will not come... Our relief, our peace and contentment will not come even from using the good gift of God's wisdom to try to figure out all of these things. Our peace and relief and contentment will come from doing the only truly wise thing one can do under the sun, and that's throw ourselves in faith on the mercy of God. That is Wisdom. It feels like you're letting go, and we are, which normally isn't wisdom. But in the world God has made, it's the only wise thing to do. And again, this isn't cynicism about the world. Notice that it's not even pessimistic. It's just wisdom. Wisdom will look cynical to those who walk by sight because wisdom won't embrace their ways and means to find peace and joy and relief. It won't embrace their explanations for what's wrong with the world, but we don't want to do that. The earth doesn't explain itself. We must look to the one who made it. We must go back to Eden as he's going to call us to here and rest in the sufficiency of God's word. Look in verse 10 as he continues. He says, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. That's a helpful verse to understand the world. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow. They won't go on forever. Because he does not fear before God. One of the most unsettling, confusing things about life under the sun, even with the gift of wisdom, is the seeming ease and triumph of the wicked and the difficulty and suffering and trials of the faithful. Solomon and much scripture, especially in the Psalms, refers to that again and again and again. He, Solomon, harkens back to chapter 5 here, if you remember, and how many who went to the house of God at the temple were... Wicked in their hearts. They used to go in and out of the holy place, he says here, and were praised for what they did, but they were actually wicked people. They were exalted by people. And if you go to their graves, you'll hear people singing their praises. Solomon says that they were good and holy people. We still do this, right? This happens all the time at funerals. I hate to say that. There's a story of a man who, a preacher who had to do a funeral in a small town for a man that everybody knew and everybody hated was the worst man in the town. He was a carouser, a gambler. He was adulterous and arrogant and violent-tempered. Everybody hated this man. He died. His brother 
comes to the preacher, asks the preacher to do his funeral. He tells the preacher, listen, I know you know my brother, but I just want you to call my brother a saint. It would mean the world to me. It would mean the world to my family. If in his funeral, you could just refer to my brother as a saint. The preacher, of course, he, he doesn't know what he's going to do. He doesn't want to upset the family, but he can't lie. So at the funeral, he stood up and he said, this man lying here this afternoon was one of the most awful, violent, adulterous drunkards our town has ever known. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. Right? <laughs> Wickedness abounds in the world. And most of the time, the wicked are the ones who are exalted. The wicked succeed. The wicked get praised. No matter what kind of person they really are, they get praised for what they might have the ability to do. or They don't seem to get punished. They don't seem to pay. They seem to gain. The Bible... Deals with this again and again and again, right? It's, it's a conundrum for us. It's very hard to see. And Solomon says that the lack of true justice in the world that he's spoken about before only exacerbates the problem in verse 11. The refusal of the God-given authorities that do exist to actually punish evil or to praise and uphold good increases the capacity for wicked people to do evil. Right? They're, wicked people are thinking, I can get away with this. There's, there's no punishment for this. There's no real crime for this. The court system is a joke, so I'm going to do what I want. And so evil increases. That's what he refers to in the next verse. That they might do this, these things a hundred times. But in verses 12 and 13, Solomon actually finds hope in spite of this. This is a rare moment in Ecclesiastes. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life... Yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before Him. But it will not be well with the wicked, neither will He prolong His days like a shadow, because He does not fear before God. So the wicked might enjoy long years on the earth. They might prolong their days here, but they're not prolonging their actual life. They're only prolonging the life they have under the sun. And that's not the only life we live as human beings. Their lives will not go on forever. So, what does wisdom teach us in light of wickedness, in light of the lack of true justice, in light of the ongoing, ever-increasing existence of evil? Trust God, for it will not be this way forever. That's the answer the Bible gives. Listen, it won't always be like this. And it won't. It won't always be like this. All the evil in the world today, the things we hear on the news and read about, right? It, it won't always be like this. Not forever. Notice that godly wisdom would be trusting God. Godly wisdom would not be to take up the cause of trying to put an end to this problem. That's powerful, I think. Wisdom wouldn't say, all right, this is bad, this is unfair, this is unjust. We have to fight to end that. Wisdom would not do that. Go back to the first nine verses. Wisdom wouldn't do this. I know it's counterintuitive, but we need to submit to Scripture. All right, This is the way of things in the world. It's not going to change. If God is telling you that's the way it's going to be in the world He has made, why would you try to change it? Right, And again, I know it sounds crazy. Shouldn't we stand up for the truth? Yes. But beloved, should we fight 
to undo the curse? No. No. And standing up for the truth, I mean, what does that look like when, when the lie is that you don't need Jesus as a Savior? That's the lie that's driving all the evil in the world. Wisdom would say, trust God and love your neighbor and don't try to change the world. And again, when we make it our ambition to change the world, to save the world, loving our neighbor in the mundane moments of life is going to look like it's not big enough. Like it look like, like if, if I, it, again, would it be wonderful to see abortion end? Yes. Yes. Will I always vote to end it? Yes. No question. But I'm saying if we fix our minds on like stopping that, the young lady that just got pregnant from her boyfriend at high school, we're going to look right over her. Right? Because, because we're, we're, again, we're not saying that cause doesn't matter. I'm not saying that. I'm saying if I really want to help, what do I do? Try to fight the king that has the authority? Or do I make sure I love that young lady and her boyfriend? They're both probably scared to death. And the world is telling them, they need to kill the baby, right? Or, or something like this. So that, that's where the church would be so helpful, right? I don't think, look, look at what just happened in our election. It's, we're not going to win that way. So don't try it. Again, I'm not saying don't vote. Not, I'm not saying these things. I'm saying where, where is the passion of your heart directed? Like, like, because there are so many people, I, 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 uh, met with a lady, we, we, our church gave her some food and a Bible and, and, and some money to help her out and I had to meet her, I, I, my, my wife and kids and I, we went and met her at the parking lot at Kroger. She is trying to get her kids back, she's been separated from her kids, her life has just gone off the rails. Look, who do I have the most ability to help? Where has God placed me? Where do I live? What do I do? Right? You, so often I think we, we're like, well, I'm, I'm going to have to quit my job at the mine or the factory or the restaurant and go fight injustice. No, no, no. Fight it in the restaurant. Right? Love, love, love. There, there is a shockingly increasing number of young kids that are dealing with, with transgender issues and homosexuality. And, and listen, beloved, we have to be the people that will care for them. I'm not talking about condoning people's sins. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm saying Jesus was sinless and all he did was spend his life and time around people that were wicked. That's all he did. We have to be like this. Right? And so we got to be very careful in our rhetoric to stop these big things that we aren't crossing the mission in our own town and the lives and the faces of the people in front of us, right? It, it just, oh man, there, there, there's so much need everywhere. There's enough need in Moundsville to fill up our time. You know, and I'm not, I'm not saying the bigger issues don't matter. I'm saying God has placed us here. God has not made me the president. He, he's, he's made me a preacher, right? God, God hasn't chosen to make us Big influencers. We, we, we live right here. This town is as valuable to Jesus as New York City is. The souls here are as valuable to our Lord as they are in Los Angeles and San Francisco. And our minds are consumed with changing those places. 
Beloved, uh, of course we want them to change. Of course we want the evil to cease. But when you read scripture, it's like, look, it's not going to end until Jesus puts an end to it. So, so that's why he gives these extremely small commands in light of all the wickedness in the world. Love your enemies. Love your neighbor. Do good to those who hate you. Do good to those who persecute you. That's enough to be tied up with. That's enough. It's just, it's, it's just we're ransomed people. We're redeemed people. We're, we're, we're getting all, 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 I won't get what I deserve. It would be great if that lady I met in the parking lot the other day knew that too. Right? It'd be great. It'd be great. Her boyfriend, husband, I don't know who he was, he's in the car, he wouldn't get out of the car and just, they're living out of their car. And that's everywhere. That's right in front of us. Right in front of us. Everywhere. What's wisdom? Right? What's wisdom? This is an amazing passage here that I'm about to read. Listen now as, as Solomon doesn't let what he doesn't know or understand control him. Right? Even with all of his wisdom. Right? He, he's, he's come to realize that, that there's so much he can't know, doesn't know. So he grounds himself in what he does know about God. You see that? That's what he's doing. I don't understand this, but here's what I do know. Here's what I do understand. So listen as he brings this to a close here. We pick it up in verse 14. There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. So he calls it what it is. Right? So frustrating. And I commend joy. That's strange. I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep. Then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. The more he discovered about God, the more he didn't know about him. It's like, oh my goodness, you're working there. You, so, however much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man can claims to know, he cannot find it out. So, do you see how verse 1 and verse 17 are bookends to this section? The value of wisdom in verse 1, the limitations of it in verse 17. You see that? You see his point now? There's another vanity that he sees as he's applying his heart to know wisdom, another worthless vapor about the world that we have to deal with in verse 14. There are righteous people who are treated like they're wicked and wicked people who are treated like they're righteous, and it's all vanity. It's all pointless, worthless. It's part of the curse. It can't be undone. It stinks that people are not always repaid according to their deeds. They don't always get what they deserve. If Hitler didn't repent... And, and was either to able to kill himself or, or able to kill himself or what's the theory that he went to like Venezuela or something and lived out his days to become an old man. If any of those things happen, that stinks. If he didn't repent for all that he did and he just got to off himself or live out his days as an old man somewhere, that stinks. What is the Bible saying? God is saying, don't worry about it. I know where he is. 
right? This won't, it won't be like that forever. Right? There, it won't be like that forever. What is wisdom's response to the problem in verse 14? It's in verse 15. The answer is in verse 15. The response is joy. What? Think about what you just read in verse 14. And the response to that, what does wisdom do? Well, joy. Just pull back for a minute. Here's what he's saying. Bad things happen to good people. Good things happen to bad people. So be joyful. What does he mean by that? Why does he commend joy here? How is that wisdom? Beloved, he's told us we can't control what happens. That is why joy is the only sensible, only wise response. Because this is God's world. It's God's design that the world is that way. It's not man's design that the world is that way. What good would anger do? Right? Limitless, unchecked anger. What good would despair do? What good would fighting the king about it do? It will increase our anxiety. It will distract us from what should consume our minds. So the only wise way to live under the sun, where even with wisdom we can't know the future and can't know everything and can't fix the curse, apparently once again would be to return to Eden in the sense of living before God, finding joy in our food and our drink and in the lot He has given us. Solomon applied all his God-given wisdom to figure out the world, to try to answer it and fix it and make sense of it. And he came to realize that even though a wise man can claim to know that he knows everything, in verse 17, he can't find it all out. So, fix your eyes on God, live your life, tend your lot with joy. You you take that and put it against, or not put it against, put it beside with Acts 17. And how we've been placed in the towns and homes in which we live, even down to our street number, for the sake of the people around us to know Christ. And you get a beautiful picture of the faithful, joyful Christian life. Tending your lot, enjoying what God has given to you, loving the people right in front of you. Beloved, that's enough. That's enough. That's as faithful as faithful can be. If God wants you doing bigger things, He'll take you to Him. Don't worry about it. Right? Leave to God all the heavy lifting. Leave to God the responsibility of saving the world. Which means that joy is what? Joy in light of verse 14 and the rest of it. Joy is an act of faith. That's what joy is. It's an act of faith. Because the world won't give us anything to actually be genuinely joyful about. Joy is not ignoring or not caring about what's wrong with the world. That's not what he means. Laughing at it, not caring It's not ignorant, foolish bliss that's apathetic and obtuse. Joy is the only way of life that actually facilitates the faithfulness to God that will result in love for our neighbor and undeterred proclamation of the gospel, which is what we're called to. Besides wisdom, as far as I can remember, joy is the only other thing Solomon commends in Ecclesiastes. Joy and wisdom, that's it. Learning to enjoy our food and our loved ones and all these gifts from God, that's an act of faith. That only results from faith. Faith that God is working all things together for our good, that He's determining the direction of the universe. That is the means to joy in the midst of all this wickedness in between. Right? 
I can't enjoy what's in front of me if I'm preoccupied. And Jesus is telling us, I have all this in my hands. It will not go on like this forever. I want you living where you are. I want your eyes on the people in front of you. Let me handle the world. You handle the people that live next to you and across the street from you that you go to school with. And by the way, I'll handle them too, but that's where I want you focused. God is aware of the world. He knows what it's like. Jesus would say it like this, in the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And apparently his overcoming did not result in an immediate change or in instant paradise. That's not what he meant. Jesus declared that by faith as he's on the eve of his death when he said that. You and I receive this by faith. The world is his. He owns it. He rules it. He's triumphed over it. He holds the future completely in his hands. That's the only real cause for joy in the world as it awaits the consummation of the Lamb's kingdom. So learning how to live life well, how to live life faithfully with wisdom means learning to live with and accept a certain level of ignorance, doesn't it? We aren't here to carry the weight of the world on our backs. God knows how it is. Jesus has not only revealed to us the depth of our sin in His life, death, and resurrection. He's revealed to us that through these things, He has overcome the world that exists under the sun. Therefore, find joy in the life God has given you. Solomon returns to this all through the book. Find joy in the place where you are. The job you have, the school you go to, your food and your drink. James Taylor, I love James Taylor's music. He sings that, in my mind I've gone to Carolina. Right? Can't you just feel the sunshine? Can't you just feel the moonshine? Beloved, go back to Eden in your mind. Right? Ponder how God created us to be and to live. And remember that we're returning to this and nothing can stop it. Find a foretaste of the paradise to which Jesus is guaranteed we will return. Find a foretaste of it in the lot that you've been given. In the people to whom you're close. That you and I exist to serve and to care for. So Solomon is not saying here, eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. That's what the atheist says. Because they've lost faith. They have no hope. Eat, drink, and be merry today, for tomorrow we die. Right? We say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we live. Because of what Jesus is, or who Jesus is, and what Jesus has accomplished. Wisdom is good. It is useful. It is necessary to learn how to think properly, think biblically, discern all of this is valuable. All of this is good and right and necessary and can help protect us. It can give us knowledge that benefits us, but it is limited. So we should use wisdom to navigate this fallen world, but must also realize that wisdom is limited in its ability to find out all there is to know about the world and why things are the way they are or to exhaustively know the Creator. So we must rest in the wisdom of God that's been personified in His Son, Jesus Christ, and what He has chosen to make known to us as we live here under the sun. As Gandalf said, even the very wise cannot see all ends. 
but the very wise can see the end. And so live with joy and faith because that end is coming.